Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, cracker cowboy poet Hank Matson tells it like it was. Well, it was a marvelous way of life, and it's a life that's uh, slowly but surely dying by the wayside. And uh, if somebody doesn't uh, let people know what it was like, uh, it's just going to be forgotten forever. Remembering when manatees were thought of as sea cows. Ray had a pistol with him and we got up beside the sea cow and he shot it numerous times in the head and it never did kill it but we had a rope around it and it swam off and it took us with it. And we'll look at how Florida is depicted in the movies. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida became the 26th state in 1845 and folks was proven up and just nicely getting settled in when the nation was at war. And in 1863 the Federals won a battle cutting Texas off from the Confederacy along with all her cattle. And so it fell to Florida. The duty then was ours to feed the starving soldiers of the Southern Stars and Bars. This next piece was told to a census taker in Taylor County, Florida in 1870. It's called Whisperin' Bill and it goes like this. So Washington's wantin' a census took. Well, sir, they's three of us livin' here still, me and Ma and our only child, what folks calls Whisperin' Bill. But now Bill can't even tell you his name, so maybe it ain't worth the givin', since them Yankee bullet killed his mind and left his body livin'. But come set a spell, sir, let me tell you about Bill. He just nicely turned thirteen, and a brighter lad back in '63, Taylor County had never seen. Cracker cowboy poet Hank Matson performs his program at libraries, festivals, and schools throughout Florida. Born and raised in Lake Placid, Florida, Matson says his goal is to preserve Florida history and cracker culture. Well, it was a marvelous way of life, and it's a life that's uh, slowly but surely dying by the wayside. And uh, if somebody doesn't uh, let people know what it was like, uh, it's just going to be forgotten forever. And uh, I think that uh, by letting them know what it was like, it just preserves it, and that's my aim. Hank Matson's poetry is mostly based on historical fact, but he does add some creative embellishment. Well, an old-timer, Buzz Keen was his name, said that uh, he never ever let the truth stand in the way of a good story, and a whole lot of it is just that, but a whole lot of it is based on actual true facts uh, about uh, characters in the state like Jacob Summerlin and Bone Mizell and uh, Hamilton Diston and uh, the Platts and the Flaglers. Um, if you read the, the book A Land Remembered, uh, that book was uh, a, a compilation of a whole bunch of people's lives, and those men, men that I named are in that book. So if, if you want to read a good book about Florida, that's the book to read. Patrick Smith, the author of A Land Remembered, was the first person interviewed on Florida Frontiers. 
Hank Matson says much of his poetry is based on his own life and experiences, but he also utilizes other resources. Every book that I could get my hands on about about Florida, uh, I work uh, for South Florida Community College. I speak to elder hostel folks, so I have uh, worldwide libraries at my fingertips. Uh, anything I want or anything I need, I can get through that library through the loan program. Uh, I can't say enough about libraries all over the place. I mean. Uh, uh, if libraries die, uh, there's going to be a lot dies. But uh, like today, uh, people came up to me and they told me some things about when they were kids. And then I go and talk to those people. I travel all over the state uh, speaking to folks who want to tell me things that happened in their lives. And then I try to write things about those things as they, uh, they put them to me so that they'll be remembered also. Hank Matson's live performances center around his poetry, but he also surrounds himself with interesting Florida artifacts and Cracker Cowboy equipment. Well, there's an old McClellan saddle uh, that was a, a Civil War era saddle, and uh, it doesn't have a horn on it. Uh, they did make some McClellan saddles that had uh, brass horns on them to haul cannons around, but 90% of them didn't have a horn. But And right after the Civil War, the cattle that we had here in the state of Florida were so small uh, and the vegetation was so thick, you couldn't rope cattle anyway, so there wasn't really a need for a horn on that on that saddle. So uh, that, <laughs> that McClellan saddle... Uh, um, it was supposed to keep the rider and the horse cool, but an old-time feller told me that uh, what that saddle did best was turn a baritone into a tenor. Uh, you'll have to look at a McClellan saddle to know what I'm talking about. There's branding irons there. There's masculating tools. I have uh, dehorning tools, uh, uh, f uh, fence pliers for uh, stringing wire uh, on fences. Uh, the fence I was 11 years old when uh, Florida passed a fence law. Uh, up until then, you could ride pretty much any, anywhere where I lived and uh, never see a fence. Uh, you were just expected home for supper, and that was about it. Uh, but uh, then with the advent of the automobile, uh, so many people were running into to cattle. When it first started, if they hit your cattle, uh, they paid you for your cattle. And a $50 uh, cow turned out to be a, a $100 cow, and uh, so folks didn't like that. So now if a cow gets out and uh, somebody hits it, it's our fault. We have to pay for the damages on the car. So th things have changed. Uh. Scholars still debate the origin of the word cracker, but Hank Matson's explanation goes back farther than most. It started with Shakespeare. Uh, he, in a play, King John, he he said something about uh, you know the, these crackers were uh, causing his ears to hurt. That's what he said. But he was speaking about Scots Irish folks, and uh, that's where it started from. When they came over here, the name cracker came with them. Uh, it's a derivative of the Gaelic word crake and means interesting educational conversation. Uh, they have crake houses over there in Scotland and Ireland where people just get together and discuss what's going on in their particular community. Uh, and they do it over coffee and tea, not over some alcoholic beverage. And it's not like uh, crake houses here. I say uh, crack houses, uh, crake houses, and they think uh, I'm talking about crack houses here, but that's not what it is. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, it was used as a southern slur for the poor folks who existed on cracked corn. And um, what mainly folks think about now uh, is the, the cracking of the whip sound. Uh, when, when Bone Mizell and Jacob Summerlin drove cattle across the, the country, um, 
the people that lived in the town could hear them coming. And the little kids would run and say, Mama, lock up the dogs and chickens because the crackers are coming. And, and you could hear them coming from miles away. And that's how they got to, to be called crackers. And uh, we're proud of that uh, here in the state of Florida. Although uh, sometimes people use it in a derogatory manner. And uh, that's just part of going down the trail, I guess. Here's how Hank Matson explains the origin of the word cracker in his poetry performances. You know, most everywhere I'm called upon to speak, the question, what the heck is a Florida cracker, sure enough does arise. So I studied up some, and now I've become just a whole lot more cracker-wise. History tells us it all started when old Will Shakespeare likened the word cracker to braggart in this here line before his death. I hope you're ready for this. What crackers then are these that so defile the ear with such superfluous abundance of inane bombastic breath? Wasn't that a mouthful? Seems like it'd have been a lot easier to say who the blazes are these windbags but Will, he had him away with words. Truth is, he was speaking about Scotch-Irish folks. Just as sure as there's whiskey and shamrocks, it's true. And when them feisty folks come over here, why that moniker come over too. And them hot-tempered, prideful pilgrims, they fought and they survived by bragging, bad-mouthing, and fast-talking their way south, where the wisecracker name was contrived. Hank Matson performs his poetry for people of all ages because he feels it's important to preserve Florida history. Well, I mean, I'm selfish about it. I just want somebody to know what the heck went on here before they paved over the entire state and before it gets all paved over. Uh, there are a lot of places. Uh, well, a sad thing about it, they opened up the Florida Agricultural Museum down here and they cut the budget now and they fired the director. So, uh, you know, here you got a beautiful facility and there's nobody to man the thing, so there's no place for people to go. So by me traveling around the country, wherever people will listen to me, uh, I can tell them what it used to be like, and I can make them aware of the fact that it's still going on today. While cracker culture is slowly becoming relegated to history books, museum exhibits, theatrical presentations, and poetry performances, Hank Matson points out that some Florida families who have been working in the cattle industry for generations continue to do so. Yeah, uh, but they have to diversify. I mean, uh, they're, they're, they're selling, a lot of people are selling off property so that their grandkids can get an education. They want them to still come back and keep the old home place and continue to raise cattle, but th they know that uh, when, when you're, when Mother Nature is your boss, uh, she can be a blessing or a curse sometimes, and, and they want those kids to have something else to fall back on, but they still want the business to, to keep going, and that's that's what, what they're doing nowadays. Um, there are a whole lot of places where kids are, don't have an interest in it, uh, but then there are other kids that just love it. I mean, I, I suppose that's like any, any other business. But it's, it's tough to get started, almost impossible for a kid that's not a member of a family to get started here because you couldn't afford to buy the land. But uh, there are a lot of kids that uh, have a truck and have a horse and can work cattle, and, and they do day labor. So there are a lot of kids that, that do that, uh, a lot of good kids, uh, uh, kids better than I am for sure. Uh, I, I don't ride much anymore, but uh, there was a day when I did, but these kids... Uh, are really good at it. 
uh, some places uh, they still round up cattle nowadays with uh, ATVs and the like, but uh, on the place that I work and a whole lot of places, there still are places where you can't get those things, and we still use dogs and horses like they did years ago. And you're never going to get away from that, uh, and that's what uh, love of animals and love of nature and being good stewards to the land. If it wasn't for people here in Florida raising cattle, this whole damn state would be paved over right now. A cracker cowboy himself, Hank Matson's most poignant poem is about how his family lost their land. It's called Progress. Yes, change is inevitable. But when I hear folks talking about how the price of progress is change, I sort of lose my composure. Because you see, the bank took every dollar and all of the change my parents had and still no progress at all was made towards fending off foreclosure. Aw, some folks said it was fate, still others a run of bad luck that forced Mama to have to wait tables and Daddy to start driving truck. Then that awful summer, them dozers demolished in less than a day our entire family history, and then they just hauled it all away. Now today, where the barn and the old home place once stood, they's a gigantic discount department store, and I sure wished I could turn back the clock. But I can't, I guess, roll back time or stop progress. But I do go back there, at least a couple of dozen times a year, to that marvelous place where I cut my first calf and roped my first steer. Because you see, under them acres of parking lot were the groves, the pens, and Grandma's garden plot. <laughs> and out back in the shed where Paul kept his car, I smoked and got sick on my first cigar. And up in the loft where the barn once stood, my teenaged cousin Dory Croft, sneaking up on womanhood, taught me when I was just ten all she knowed about kissing. And right then, I quit hating gals, wondering what else I'd been a-missing. Well, anyway, here the other day, back in the grocery department, I closed my eyes and I swear I could still see where the cane press and boiler both used to be. I could see the old mule a-trudging and a-toiling. I could smell that hot syrup a-bubbling and a-boiling and sweet, sweet memories flooded my mind and flowed down into my heart till I got knocked to the floor by a damned shopping cart, loaded plumb full of two snot-nosed screaming skypers, cigarettes, beer, and disposable diapers. Then my assailant, she asks if I'm hurt, and I'm not, but soon security helps me out to the parking lot, and he says he's noticed and he's curious why, I come in twice a month, but I don't never buy. So I tell him, I'm probably cutting my nose off to spite my face, but I'll never spend a dime in this here place. Cause on the site of your giant conglomerate, once set the sweetest little spread in the sunshine state. I'm visiting granddaddy's ranch, I say, where my pa was born and I used to play. Well then that security man, he shook my hand, saying, Come often as you like, friend. I understand. So then I head for my truck, trying to fight back a tear. And above all the racket, I swear I can still hear 
the old dinner bell clangin', and the screen door a bangin'. Ma'll have fried chicken and biscuits for soppin', sweet tater pies with marshmallow toppin'. And tomorrow, Pa's fixin' to kill him two hogs. Then in the evenin', relaxin', we'll laugh whilst the dogs romp in the yard and roll in the dirt. And I'll study on gettin' me a new shirt to wear to the very next comin' up dance where a ten-year-old boy might just get the chance, if and he's lucky, to try sure enough what all he's just learnt about kissin' and stuff. But then I start the truck, and I'm sick inside, knowin' how few hands today own the lands that they ride. And as I progress towards my heavily mortgaged half-acre ranch, with its three million head of fierce fire ants. I reckon I'm adapting to change, but at one hell of a cost, cause all's I can still see is the old home place we lost. Cracker cowboy poet Hank Matson performs throughout the state. He can be reached at www.crackercowboypoet.com. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to buy Florida books, explore our historic photo gallery, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. The cattle industry was Florida's biggest industry long before citrus production and then tourism took over. Beef was not the only meat available, however. Manatees and other Florida wildlife now considered off-limits were once regularly eaten by Floridians. In fact, as Janie Gould reports, up until the 1940s and 50s, manatees were still thought of as sea cows. Fort Pierce native Curtis Ramsey grew up in the 1940s and 50s. Back then we used to eat a lot of things that you don't eat anymore. Never. Like what? Gator. We used to eat gator tail. Deer. We used to eat the sea turtles and the sea cow. Did you catch all of those things yourself? No, not until I got older. When I got to be a teen and I moved up to Merritt Island, then I helped catch some of those. They had what they called dune buggies back then. It was just old wrecked cars that the men of the family put together and they put big wheels on it and stuff and they'd ride the beach looking for turtles and they'd ride the canal banks and stuff like that looking for uh, sea cows and whatnot. Do you remember um, bringing home a big manatee? The last one I remember, the last two, I was staying with some of my relatives up in Marin Island. My cousin Ray, he and I was out in the river. I think we were getting oysters. Anyway, we came across a sea cow. It was a big son of a gun. And Ray had a pistol with him. And we got up beside the sea cow, and he shot it numerous times in the head. And it never did kill it, but we had a rope around it, and it swam off, and it took us with it. We were just in a kind of a light rowboat. And it finally died, but then we... Pulled it back up into a canal there at the Merritt Island Airport. And we went home and we got my uncle's horse trailer and Jeep. And we went back down there and we packed the trailer down in the canal, floated the sea cow up in there because it was too big to get out any other way, and pulled it up out of the canal and took it home. And all the family got together and we started cleaning it so we could eat it. The men would kind of get it down to the meat and get the chunks of meat and stuff off. And then the women would take care of finishing it up, trimming the meat up, getting it out of steaks and roast and things like that. How did you clean a manatee? Well, they have a real tough hide. 
and you'd have to cut through the hide and then there's a real thick layer of fat which the fat was real good for cooking because it was better than regular lard it wouldn't burn for the most part it was kind of clear like water so it made real good for cooking we would save that we'd save the fat and boil it down i say we the mothers and the women folk would do that sort of thing and we just cleaned the meat off the bones and whatever. How big do you suppose that manatee was? That last one there was pretty good. We estimated him to be around 2,000 pounds because it filled up the whole horse trailer. The nose of it was in one corner and its tail was out the back. It was huge. I mean, really big. It was one of the biggest ones I've ever seen. That one fed just about every Ramsey on the island. <laughs> there was a mess of Ramseys up there. You know, there were several families up there because I had four uncles, three or four aunts, and everybody got some. You know, like, like I was saying before, families in stuck together. If I had something you needed, you got it. That's just the way it was back then. It's not like it is today. Did you have one big party? No, no. We did with hogs a couple of times, but not with the manatees or the sea turtle. The sea turtles were, there wasn't enough of that really to have a big party with to begin with because there's not that much meat on a sea turtle. And a lot of the manatee probably went in the deep freezes. We didn't have deep freezes. When was this, the 50s? Uh, yeah, it would have to be 1954. It was shortly before I went in the Navy that we got that last sea cow, and that was the last one any of us ever got that I know of. Obviously, the manatee is protected by the government now. Well, it was back then, too, but if you could do it and not get caught. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. <laughs> sea turtles, too. It was against the law. At that time? Sure. Everybody knew everybody. And, you know, if you didn't go down there and take everyone every night, they knew, you know, the people back then just didn't have much. We lived on rabbit and sea turtle and whatever, you know, dove. In the 50s even? Yeah, sure. I can remember eating rabbits and coots. You know what a coot is? No. They call them mud hens up north. It's a skinny little black duck, but they're good. They're not fatty like a regular duck. They're more like a rabbit or a chicken, and we used to fry them. You don't see them anymore. I haven't seen a coot in, I can't remember when. My dad came home one time. I didn't see this. My aunt told me about it. He came home with so many coots that he had taken his pants off and tied the ends of his legs in knots, and both legs were stuffed full of coots. He had it slung over his shoulder when he came home. That was Fort Pierce native Curtis Ramsey. Florida has had laws on the books protecting manatees since way back in 1893. However, it wasn't until 1967 that the giant mammals received federal protection as an endangered species. I'm Jenny Gould. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. is a popular setting for movies. As Bill Dudley reports, recent scholarship has been done on the history of how our state is depicted by the film industry. Think, think of the opportunities here in Florida. Three years ago, I came to Florida without a nickel in my pocket. Now I've got a nickel in my pocket. 
1929, the Marx Brothers take a satirical look at Florida land speculators in the movie Coconuts. I started thinking about other films that have been made about Florida. And I wondered if films about Florida had changed over a period of time. In 2006, two University of South Florida historians, Susan Fernandez and Robert Ingalls, published Sunshine in the Dark, Florida in the Movies, examining the cinematic messages that have shaped people's perceptions of Florida over time. Up through about World War II, most of the films that were made about Florida were films about wealthy people coming to the state. So you saw the kinds of panoramas and the kinds of experiences that the upper class, the elite, would have. I think you like Palm Beach very much. Who's that? Well, that's my sister, the princess. Hello, Maud. After World War II, more tourists of all social classes flocked to the state. But in the movies, Florida was still seen as an uncrowded paradise. What happens to Miami, in particular in Florida in general, is that it goes from paradise to a kind of hell on earth that is barely tolerable between uh, the crime, to take the example of Miami Vice, to the environment with supposedly alligators and sharks presenting a real threat, as well as the sun. The sun was long seen as a curative for people who were ill, and now it's seen as a source of skin cancer, and it is to be feared as much as loved, which is kind of symbolic of Florida. Fernandez and Ingalls identify three themes found in most Florida films. One is tourism, the Florida vacation films such as Moon Over Miami, The Bellboy, Where the Boys Are, and many others. Another theme is crime, and the third is starting over. I've got to follow that dream wherever that dream may lead. Follow that dream with Elvis Presley. Showed people coming to Florida and achieving great things and finding love and romance. Whether in Presley's film or in the final scenes of a film like Midnight Cowboy, Florida is seen as a place to find a new and better life. I feel tremendous. I'm ready to take all the world. We'll never be sick. We won't get any older and we won't ever die. But Florida is a state in constant change and movies have in their own way reflected this too. Not bad, huh? I'll have 2,000 more units in the next two years. Hey, I bet they'd love a great shopping mall right here. Condos over there. Plenty of parking. I think most of the changes that have come to Florida are depicted in film negatively. Whether it's development, whether it's nature's revenge, uh, animals and creatures striking back, or in crime that goes from kind of harmless in bootlegging in the 1920s to drug-related crimes of the 1980s, that are seen as vicious and deadly. But whereas Fernandez and Ingalls' book studies Florida as seen through the eyes of filmmakers, Susan Dahl and David Morrow's book, Florida on Film, serves as a guidebook to Florida locations for films ranging from obscure silence to favorites like Key Largo, Body Heat, Cocoon, many of the James Bond thrillers, and even cult horror films like Jeepers Creepers, shot in rural Marion County. Dahl, a Chicago-based film historian, and Morrow, a non-fiction editor, say it's part of a new trend in tourism, as film buffs want to visit shooting locations. Film tourism has been one of the fastest growing areas of the tourism industry over the last couple of years. Over and over, movies seem to reflect popular images of Florida. But do they also create them? Oftentimes when people talk about film, they like to say, oh, it reflects what's going on in the time. And they say that about music, too. It reflects what's happening in the streets. But that's not exactly true. It also influences. So I'm sure some of these images in films reinforce 
and maybe get some people to think about Florida in a different way based on what they see in the film. What are some of the four writers' favorite films? Independent productions like John Sayles' Sunshine State and the work of filmmaker Victor Nunez, The Flash of Green, Gal Youngin, and Yuli's Gold. His films speak to a regional culture in Florida that most people don't know about, speak to the richness of the types of people who live in Florida or the types of different locales of Florida. Florida isn't just one homogenous state. Each region has a flavor or identity, and his films help capture that. Help with this report came from journalist T. Allen Smith. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Visit us on the web at flahum.org. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. Thank you.